joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. O come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Come we to welcome Emmanuel, king who came with no crown or throne. You noticed that in our Christmas hymns, almost every one of them has some allusion to Christ as king. And that really is a good question to ask, why? Why do the hymn writers see the need when they write of the incarnation of Christ to also make mention of his royalty, his kingly authority, his kingship? Well, the reason why that is in all the, nearly all the Christmas hymns that we sing is because of the significance of it, first of all, but other than just the significance of what it means that Christ being king, we have the concept uh, that this is the first gospel's message. Um, the first gospel, Matthew, tells us that Christ is king. It's the point of it. And we're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm just going to do a run through the kingly expressions found in the book of Matthew, focusing most, off, most of all in the first couple chapters because it sets the stage for all of it. I do have a, there we go, we got it up. Because there's some things I want to show you today and some interesting things. So we read Matthew 1, 18 through 25, but we didn't read Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And the reason why most of us rarely read this text of Scripture is because it seems to be just a list of hard-to-pronounce names. That means that most of us, I mean, there's a few people here who share names, but most of us do not share the same names as the individual of this list. It's strange to us. It's different from many thousands of years ago. But I'm going to go ahead and read these first 17 verses in Matthew chapter 1, set the stage for our sermon this morning, and then we're going to keep moving through the book of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah, and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad, Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." 
And in case we didn't see it clearly, Matthew wants to make clear what he's just done here. And he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. What a strange way to begin the gospel, the good news, the first gospel. And it is first in intention in the order in which we read it. Because it is first even in primacy and priority. Understanding this first enables us to understand everything else that we read about in the gospels. (coughs) So is this just a long list of hard-to-pronounce names with a few in there that we recognize from some Sunday school stories. And the answer is obviously not, partly because of the flair and creativity in the way Matthew does this. You caught that, right? Three groups, 14 generations in each group. Is this coincidence? No, it's not coincidence. Matthew is doing something by the Holy Spirit's will. He is doing something unique here because there are actually more People in the line of Christ, because that's clearly what he's setting up, right? Joseph and then Mary and then Jesus. There are more people in the line of Christ than are even found in these names right here. So clearly he's not just giving a list of names. He's choosing particular people to write down. So that he gets three groups of 14 in each. Once again... Kind of makes sense a little bit when we start to realize Matthew was this like first century accountant. He's meticulous. He's careful. Numbers mean something to him. He thinks numerically. And so he writes to us something numerically. But why does he do this? The three groups pinpoint particular movements in Israel's history. Notice he doesn't start with Adam and uh, Eve and then Seth and then he doesn't have Noah in here anywhere. He starts particularly with Abraham because he's not telling us where Jesus came from, humanly speaking. That would be Adam, which is what Luke actually does. He starts with Adam and works that way, telling us where Jesus came He's truly a human, but he doesn't start with just any person. He starts with Abraham, the one to whom God gave the promise that through you, through your child Abraham, through one of your descendants, the seed will come, the Christ, the Messiah. And so in the first group, he gives us Abraham and his lineage all the way up, and he pauses when he gets to the guy named David. And he says, David the king. And then he goes on with David the king and everybody he mentions from there on are kings. And he gets to this time in Israel's history when there was no king on the throne anymore. He gets to this time in Israel's history where now they were in captivity in Babylon. And it seemed like the promise to Abraham of the Messiah was an impossibility because there is a threat that there is no more Abraham's seed. There is no more Israel. They're in captivity. They're no longer in the land of promise. But he shows that God has still been preserving a people even while they're in captivity. From captivity until, through actually multiple captivities, the Babylonian captivity, the Grecian captivity, the Persian captivity, and now in this 
man Joseph and his betrothed Mary into Roman captivity 2,000 years ago. And so he's, surely he's teaching us something theologically here and historically here. It's not just, well, who was your dad and who was your dad and who was your grandpa and your great-grand? It's something else going on here. With the numbers, with the order, something big is happening. What is he doing here? you knew that on the Christmas Eve sermon I was going to have some sort of Hebrew that we're going to talk about. So there is, the, so the Hebrew people, now Matthew's writing in Greek, but he's a Hebrew guy, and he thinks in a Hebrew way. The Hebrew language does not have, did not have and does not have numbers. Like we have one, two, three, four, and all those numbers. Uh, that, that's borrowed from the Middle East for us, but it's, it's not... Um, it's not the way the Hebrews did things. Kind of like the Romans used little letters and Roman numerals, different sort of counting. Hebrews had their different kind of counting. It was really simple. Each letter of the alphabet was also a number. So for those of you that have read the Psalms, you know like Psalm 119, like each section is the beginning of a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Well, it's actually just one, two, three, four. He's numbering them off. Because... Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, is how they would say one. Bet, the second letter, is how they'd say two, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you can see, if you want to there, they got to 10, and then they jumped up 20. So if you wanted to say 25, you'd say kof hey. That was 25. You'd write it. Well, the Hebrews also, especially accountant types, really like to use these numbers in order to also highlight other things going on. Now, this is not the same thing as the falsely numerical biblical codes. It's not hidden codes. It's not hidden meanings that are different than what's out there on the surface. It's a simply their way, one of their ways. They had multiple ways of doing this, as, you've, as you probably know if you've been here for any time. Uh, their way of like drawing circles around things, highlighting things with yellow highlighter, using colored pencils, they would use different things. We've talked about the structure of the text and parallelism and chiasms and all this sort of stuff. Well, this was another thing called gematria that they used in order to highlight something. So it should not surprise us that when Matthew keeps saying, yeah, 14 matters, yeah, 14, let me just say 14 one more time, that he's meaning something by it, Right? You know what's really fascinating? Dalit Vav Dalit. So the name David is the number 14. What Matthew is doing here is he is saying, as not only in the words of the text, which we're going to see in a moment, but he is shouting with numbers, David, 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 David. Over and over again, he's shouting David with words. So we might do it differently. We might write all these things down and then take a big red pen and circle David. And that's what, we, that's what we're saying. This is about David. David's the really key right here. David. Because we're not Hebrews and so we, don't, we have numbers, we don't do it this way. But this is the way Matthew does it. Furthermore, did you notice, if you are paying attention and you've been at Grace for any time, this chiasm, you remember this like kind of arrow pointing toward the middle. There's actually three chiasms in this genealogy. And kind of, it's amazingly poetry. He goes, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, in verse 1. And then verse 17, when he says it at the end, he starts backwards. This is about the captivity to Jesus 
David to captivity, or sorry, Abraham to David backwards, David to captivity, and then the captivity of Jesus. So he kind of works front and back, and David is pointing at it. And then when you see the middle of the text, all three columns, the very middle of the entire genealogy, the middle words and all of it is this phrase, David the king. Now, all the rest of the guys that follows were kings too. Solomon was a king, right? So why does he say David the king? Because he's pointing out in this really strange list of names, he's simply saying and shouting from the rooftops, when you see the Christ, immediately cause your mind and your heart to run back to David the king. Why? While God promised that the seed of Abraham would be the Messiah, he promised specifically to David that that seed that would come through Abraham and then through David, that Christ, the Messiah, the God with us, that he would sit on the throne of David and on his throne and of his rule, there would be no end promise to David, the covenant to David, is that there is coming a descendant not only of Abraham, but of David, the notorious sinner. That there would be one who would not be a notorious sinner, but be notoriously righteous and perfect. And he would be the king of kings. So why did the Christmas hymns always write about king, because the first gospel in the New Testament starts out with a genealogy saying, Christ is the king. But that's not all. This actually becomes the theme of Matthew's gospel. Now, he writes about other things. It's a big gospel. I preached through this like 10 years ago, um, and it took three years to preach through it because it's so much there. But undercurrent, all the way through this entire first gospel, it's like this whisper that grows into a shout. Jesus Christ is your king. Jesus Christ is your king. Jesus Christ is your king. Over and over and over again. So then it doesn't surprise me when we see that we have a royal genealogy, the king previewed in a royal genealogy, that immediately, then describing the birth of Jesus, the second half of the text that we read this morning, verse 18 through 25, Matthew wants us to be very sure that we're aware that this king is no ordinary king. And so he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Does that mean God wasn't with his people when they crossed the Red Sea? Does that mean God wasn't with his people when they were under captivity? Does that mean God wasn't with David when he was in the caves? Surely he was with them. So what's different here? Why is God with us? What people are going to say about the Christ when they could have said, well, God is always with us. He's everywhere after all. He's God. Surely Matthew, the inspired writer, means something more than just God's spiritual presence, though that is a beautiful thing. He means no God will embody himself. God will incarnate. That's an impossibility. That the infinite will wrap 
affinity around him. Now, he doesn't do this in any way by diminishing his divinity. He doesn't lay aside any divine qualities or properties. We read the rest of the Gospels, and Jesus did the things that God does, and only God does. This was not a veiling or an incarnation in subtraction, but it was a veil, it was a veiling, it was an incarnation as God with us in adding to his divine nature a human nature. God became human to feel, to suffer, to experience humanity, and thus, Hebrews says, he sympathizes with us. The impassable became passable in his human nature. But because he's still yet God and divine nature, he's not only compassionate and sympathetic, but he's capable of solving our problems divinely. So he's God and man. We sang that in the Christmas hymn. Very God, begotten, not created. God is with us. Now, when you go to Luke, and we're going to read that tonight during our Christmas Eve service, you read all, all through these things. There's all sorts of really amazing things that, that Luke tells us about the birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ, about shepherds and angels singing Gloria and, uh, and all sorts of things happening. But it's interesting to me that Matthew, in starting the text this way, gives us this long genealogy of Christ the King, says it's God with us, and then the only statement about the birth of Jesus was, and he was born, and Joseph called his name Jesus. Like, that's the, that's the extent of what Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus. And then he fast forwards approximately two years. Why does he do that? Why not give us more details? Ah, because his theme. This is the Christ the King. He's King. And so what he does in Matthew chapter 2 is it's probably about two years, somewhere, somewhere around there, some two years later. Uh, Mary and Joseph have settled in. They're staying in Bethlehem for a while because it's really difficult to travel in the ancient uh, Middle East with an infant. And so they're going to take up residency in Bethlehem for a time. And they're in a house. And these strange individuals show up in the capital city, just a little ways north of Bethlehem in Jerusalem. And they encounter the, quote, king of the Jews. His name was Herod. Now, in reality, he's a puppet king. He, his, even his Jewish heritage is suspect. He was put there by Caesar to kind of throw a bone to the Hebrew people, keep them calm, you can have your king. So you had Herod be this king. But, but like most um, a big fish in small ponds, it goes to the head. And Herod thought he was pretty, pretty great. And so when these strange individuals, sometimes called wise men or magi, come, they say, hey, we are looking for the king of the Jews. Now, how humiliating it must have been when they show up in Herod's court and they say, uh, where's the king? And people bring them to Herod and they go, uh, Herod, where's the king? You're looking at, no, the king of the Jews, because we've read and we've seen that there is to be born the king of the Jews. Where's he at? Herod plays it cool. Hey, I'd like to know too. When you find out, let me know. 
So then Herod immediately runs from there, grabs the scribes and says, is there anything I missed in the scripture? And they probably said, yes, everything. But is there anything I missed in the scripture about a king being born? And they look at it and say, well, yeah, in Bethlehem. There's supposed to be, there's a prophecy that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And they knew that when the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, he's going to be the king. Well, Herod's response is, I'm going to murder every child under the age of two to wipe out this king that rivals me. These magi, which are probably either Nabataean royalty or Persian priests, we don't know exactly who they are. We know they're Gentiles. They come from the east, the Middle East probably. They find out that he's in Bethlehem. They come, as opposed to Herod, and these Nabataean royalty, you could call them, as we sometimes do traditionally, kings, they come into this child in this home, and it says two times in chapter 2 that they bow, they pay homage. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And what did they do? They opened treasures. They presented him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, luxurious, royal homage. Why does Matthew tell us nothing else about the birth of Christ but tells us this? His royalty was previewed, and then he was welcomed with royalty, even as a child. Now, the interesting thing about this, this perhaps a side note in all of it, is the sort of irony. The Jewish king responds to the news, the good news of the Messiah being born, with murderous rage intent to destroy him. While the Gentile foreigners, the pagans, respond to the news of the Messiah, who is to be king, they respond with worship and adoration. This will become a theme all through the book of Matthew, another theme. He came unto his own. His own did not receive him. But the Gentiles along did. Some of the Jews did and some of the Gentiles. And there is this, this uh, sort of quiet ripple going on in Matthew's gospel. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the world. He's king of humanity. Jew and Gentile worship before him. Matthew's not done with our theme. A few chapters later, we read about Jesus healing people, telling parables and stories and those sorts of things. And as he's doing this, he pauses in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And he tells us something that none of the other gospel writers tell us. He tells this really famous thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the most beautiful, impressive sermon ever spoken by a human being. Countless books have been written about this sermon. Believers, unbelievers of like have dissected it and have come up with the fact that Jesus was a genius teacher from this sermon. But you know, it really wasn't a sermon. It was actually a royal proclamation. 
He opens the sermon this way or the proclamation this way. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the king has been previewed his royalty. The king has been welcomed by, Jew, by, by Gentile, rejected by human kings. And so now he opens his mouth and he proclaims, this is my kingdom. And these are the people who are part of my kingdom, the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek, the repentant, the believing. These are my kingdom. And then he goes on for three lengthy chapters in our Bibles, and he proclaims what his kingdom and the subjects of him look like. This is what it's like to follow the king. This is what the king expects of you. This is what you do. This is how the king says, walk this way. You walk this way. That's what Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's a royal proclamation. And they get it because at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For Not not because it was new or because it was particularly Um, what was not very new, it was explanation of old things, or because he had such great oratory abilities. But they were astonished. Why? For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. What kind of authority is he speaking of here? Because he taught them like a king. He proclaimed like a king. And so we have the king in Matthew previewed The king born and royally welcomed, and then we have the king proclaims in this royal sermon his kingdom and what it looks like to be a subject of the king. If we had time, which we don't, we would walk through the rest of the book of, of, uh, of, just so used to being in Genesis, the rest of the book of Matthew, and look at Jesus' miracles and his parables and they're just amazing things what he's doing throughout all of that is he's proving his deity he's proving that he's god he's proclaiming that he's god that he's not just any king he's the divine king and so he's proving this with his his divinity he's proving his perfection he's proving his worth his value he's proving that he is worthy of following as king showing grace and compassion. But I want to run ahead in the book of Matthew to the Sunday before Jesus dies. Because the Sunday before Jesus dies, Matthew wants us to remember something because what is to follow doesn't look like the works of one who speaks with authority as a king. Before he a week before he dies, he informs his disciples that they need to go get him a little donkey colt. Throw a blanket on it. I'm going to ride it. I'm going to ride it into Jerusalem. So in Matthew 21, this is what we read. This is a quote from the Old Testament prophecies. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. Now, people were ecstatic. The text tells us 
that they threw uh, palm branches in front of him. They cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, king. And he says, yes, tell them, I'm the king and I'm coming. But this is strange because he's a king who is riding into Jerusalem, which they would assume to liberate them, but he's riding in to Jerusalem, the capital city where the king should reside, Zion, lowly, humbled, and sitting on a donkey's foal. That's not what you would expect a king, a liberating king, to enter the city like. Instead, it'd be like every epic movie you've ever seen where the king gathers his army behind them, gets on the biggest, whitest steed, pulls his sword, and rushes the gates of Jerusalem. That's the king coming, right? But not this time. He comes lowly and sitting on a donkey's foal. Why? Because what he is going to do and accomplish in that week, toward the end of it, is going to be the most humiliating experience that anyone can experience. The most lowly expression. He is going to express for them a humiliation, a shame, a scandal, a devastating tragedy that's not befitting of the king. That rather is befitting of the worst criminal of sorts. He's going to come in and be humiliated. And this is the key and the, the like surprising part. And he says, and that's my plan. Tell, I'm doing, you set this, I'm, this is what I'm going for. I'm supposed to ride in. I want to ride in. I'm running toward or riding toward the humiliation of what lies before me. And so the king does come in, but he comes in uniquely in a humiliated state. Because he enters the capital city not to liberate it from Rome, but to liberate the people from their sins. That's why he was born. That's why his name was Jesus, Savior, to save his people from their sins. And he will do this. He will, he will pay the price for his people to be righteous by suffering divine punishment for Adam's guilt to remove that from the children of Adam's record. He will offer his lived righteousness in the place of his people of our lived wickedness. And he will pay the just death penalty, the right reward for our guilt and sinfulness so that we might have full pardon and forgiveness. And in his sacrifice, he will purge us so that the Spirit of God that rests upon him would live with and among us, making us then 
able to be, and in fact, being true subjects of the king. Pardoned, forgiven, ransomed, restored. To do that, he must take our sinfulness, embrace it as his own, so that he might absorb the righteous judgments of the holy God. And so that's why he comes in lowly and sitting on a donkey, because this is the lowliest of places he will occupy. And so it is that Matthew tells us that though Christ the King, he was rejected by the will of God, accused of being an imposter. He doesn't wear a royal crown, but a crown of thorns grown from the fall of Adam's sin. He doesn't carry the scepter of righteousness that Isaiah says. Instead, they put a reed, a wilty stick in his hand, and they say, there's your rod, king. Rather than hearing the praise as king come to free us, he hears the mock, hail, king of the Jews, save yourself. The truth cannot be silent, though. It can be veiled, but it's never silent. So Pilate, the scummy Gentile governor who doesn't know any better, takes a placard and posts it over his head on this cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. They don't like it very much, but they can't do anything about it. Though King... He's crucified with criminals. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In His death, Jesus Christ the King earned for us the right to be called sons of God, princes in His eternal kingdom. This is his humanity, his human nature that he took upon himself in full humiliating display. But remember, Jesus, unlike us, had two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. I don't understand how this works because I only have a human nature. But he is the divine son of God who became man. And so it is the most normal thing to God to not stay dead. And so three days later, the divine nature of Christ revives his human nature. And he rises from the grave, defeating the last, de last enemy, death itself. He paid the price for us to be his pardoned people. And so we have his royal genealogy, the preview of the king, we have his royal welcome, the king born. We have his royal proclamation, the king's sermon. We have his, his royal sacrifice, the king crucified. I think it's interesting how Matthew ends the last words in his book, in this first gospel. The rest of Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ, still man and God in full display of both, 
is in his disunion, he now incarnate is before, ascends to heaven, and he is before the Father and with the Father. He is in the throne and beside the throne and around the throne. He is all in all. And I know it's confusing and I know it's mysterious, but it is God and it is amazing. But he is priest and king, and so he advocates for his kingdom, for his people, night and day, praying and interceding. As true God, he sits on that throne and is able to forgive our sins, comfort our troubles, and promise to remove our pain soon. But before he went back to this throne, he spoke of his forming kingdom subjects, his church, his disciples. So the last thing Matthew records us say, him saying to them is this. Jesus came and spoke to them. That's the subjects of the king, the disciples, the church, saying, all authority, there's your kingdom, there's your royalty, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. It's a kingly proclamation. And here is the preciousness of the king. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Fitting end to the royal gospel, the king commands a royal commission to the end of the age. But the king's story is not over, and I close with this. And our story is not over either. See, he doesn't just command this. You see, back in the last week, between that Sunday when he comes as the king on the donkey and the Friday or Thursday when he's crucified, between that time frame, he taught people as a king would. And one of the things he taught his disciples, one of the things he taught his people is to expect the death, to expect the resurrection, but to expect a different kind of return. Not one where he's lowly and sitting on a donkey, but something different. And so in Matthew 24, in telling them this, he says this, immediately, he's talking about the end of all things, the end of the age that he's with them unto. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, terrible things are going to happen, the moon will not give its light, you can kind of get the idea here, right? Stars falling from heaven, powers of heaven shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man, that's the King, will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus predicted, like, but I'm going to come back after all this and it's not going to be humble and lowly and sitting on a donkey. The Apostle John amplifies this for us in the last book of the New Testament. I'm sorry, the rest of this verse I didn't finish. He will send his angels with great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And this is what it will look like. Now I saw heaven opened. Behold, not a donkey, but a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, not thorns, crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You think about it, many infants have become kings, but only one king ever became an infant. And Matthew is telling us this, the way he opens the book and closes it. Jesus didn't become a king. He was the king who became a baby. He is the king who is returning. Christmas ought to draw us toward Christ as King. What's our response? I'd ask you to consider these three things. Rest in his royal sacrificial rescue. Rest. That's the first thing you must do with Christ the King. Rest in his rescue. Rest in his rescue. It would be a shame to have celebrated Christmas so many years and come to the end of your life and you've never actually rested and received the King as your Lord and God. Rest. Anticipate his royal return and worship his divine person.